Hi everyone, and welcome to another ICM Iskir Next Calibration podcast. My name is Ahmed Zahir. I'm a senior clinical fellow of adult intensive care at the Oxford University Hospitals in the United Kingdom, and an Iskir Next committee member. With all the pleasure, joining me today two experts in the field, Dr. Bram Rushworth, who is an intensivist and researcher based at McMaster University in Hamilton, Canada. His main focus of research includes resuscitation medicine and intravenous fluid use in sepsis. Also, he has gained knowledge and expertise in meta-analysis, network meta-analysis, and randomized code control trials. His other area of focus is clinical practice guideline methodology, and he, ha- and he currently works with many international organizations supporting their guideline development projects. Also, he serves on the executive for the Canadian Critical Care Society. Our next speaker, or our second speaker, is Dr. Shannon Fernando, who is a critical care physician at Lake Ridge Health. He completed his MD degree at Queen University and postgraduate training in emergency medicine and critical care medicine at the University of Ottawa. His primary research interests are in cardiac arrest, vulnerable populations in the ICU, and long-term outcomes among ICU survivors. Also, he has published in many journals as the New England Journal of Medicine, the BMJ, JAMA Internal Medicine. Today, we will be talking and discussing the recent publication, Non-Invasive Respiratory Support Following Extubation in Critically Ill Adults, a Systematic Review and Network Meta-Analysis. So welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having us. So much, Ahmed. Really appreciate the opportunity. First of all, I would like to appreciate this wonderful and amazing piece of work, which I'm pretty sure many intensivists will be keen to listen to your perspectives and results as we face this problem as an intensivist in our daily practice. So, Bram, so Bram, can you tell us more about potential causes for extubation failure? and its impact on our daily practice in critical care, and what do the current guidelines say? Absolutely, uh, my pleasure. You know, I think uh, one of the best things we know we can do for our mechanically ventilated intensive care patients is work to try to get them liberated from mechanical ventilation as quickly as possible. And I think a lot of the interventions that we've uh, developed and learned over the last little while, like frequent spontaneous awakening trials, frequent spontaneous breathing trials, trying to wean sedation as much as possible, using things like prophylaxis to prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia, um, and in general, using the least amount of sedation uh, we can, is all geared towards uh, liberation. Obviously, the other side of that is that um, working towards uh, liberation as soon as possible there's always the risk of extubating too soon. And the old adage that if you're not re-intubating patients, then you're not extubating enough. And to some degree, I think that's true. But you, again, weigh that against the risk of of prolonging mechanical ventilation and exposing your patients to uh, increased risk. And so I think one of the key components there is that if you do deem that your patient is suitable for extubation, Um, is doing everything that you can following extubation to minimize their risk of reintubation. And I think that there are things that we do 
but perhaps the use of non-invasive ventilation and high-flow nasal cannula is a fantastic avenue um, to maximizing the chances of success uh, with extubation. And essentially, that was the impetus of uh, Shannon, who did a, a fantastic job with this, leading this review, was evaluating the different non-invasive tools that we have uh, to maximize one's chance of, of successful extubation. And uh, as you can see, we evaluated a number of uh, components, including, like I say, high-flow nasal cannula, non-invasive ventilation, which includes CPAP and BiPAP, and then standard oxygen therapy, which would just be traditional Venturi mask or nasal cannula following extubation. And uh, I have been involved uh, in both um, non-invasive ventilation guidelines and high-flow nasal cannula guidelines prior to this. Both have commented in the post-extubation period. When it comes to non-invasive ventilation or bi-level ventilation, really the only population that is recommended for use of non-invasive ventilation is your hypercarbic respiratory failures uh, following extubation. This is you know, primarily your COPD exacerbation population. And the role for NIV in the setting is twofold. One, extubation directly to NIV to help offload the respiratory muscles and maximize the chances of success, avoiding post-extubation hypercarbia. But as you may know, there's also uh, it, within the guidelines and current recommendations, perhaps a role for you know, even premature extubation to NIV, facilitating extubation to NIV, maybe even sooner than you would normally extubate, but doing it from slightly higher settings or with a slightly uh, higher RSBI uh, with the, the acknowledgement that you're still providing some positive pressure. And when it comes to high flow, I mean, the data that we have, and this comes mostly from the Hernandez trials in, in JAMA, uh, and the previous high flow nasal cannula we did with ESICM last year, fairly widespread use of high flow uh, nasal cannula in the post extubation period. Um, pretty much, the, regardless of whether you're talking about high high risk or low risk patients, uh, we made recommendations for use. Um, and uh, I think a lot of the barriers are uh, when it comes to, to more widespread use, things like cost and our respiratory therapist workload, um, but, but certainly felt like there was room for a, a network meta-analysis like this to continue to uh, illustrate the evidence base and, and if there's a role for it, encourage use of these modalities following extubation in, in terms of maximizing the chance of success. Thank you so much. That was really an interesting answer. So Shannon, what made embark on this systematic review and what need did you identify? Yeah, so similar to what Ram was saying, I think yeah, the guidelines uh, have, have largely supported the use of these interventions um, in the, uh, the post-excavation setting, but with varied degrees of, of uh, recommendation. The other thing I think a lot of us have really noticed is uh, tremendous variability in the use of non-invasive ventilation, whether it's non-invasive positive pressure ventilation or high flow nasal cannula uh, from center to center. There's a lot of great work that's been done in terms of survey studies that show, you know, as high as 50% of healthcare providers uh, and as high as 30 to 40% of physicians in particular don't really believe that non-invasive ventilation uh, can mitigate the risk of extubation failure uh, in the post-extubation setting. Uh, you know, certainly I can say that's true uh, for the, the individuals that I work with uh, at various different centers that uh, some people really strongly believe that non-invasive ventilation can mitigate extubation failure, but there are a lot of people who don't believe uh, that it's beneficial at all. 
Um, and so in, this, in, this, in, the, in the light of new randomized evidence uh, and the ability to use network meta-analysis to, to combine all of those trials, uh, we felt that this was really an important question to embark upon. Thank you, Shannon. So Shannon, Bram mentioned about different uh, ways of reducing extubation failure. So what were the interventions used in the systematic review and assessed to reduce the risk of extubation failure? Yeah, so uh, to, to recap, recap a little bit of what Bram said. So in total, we ended up including 36 trials uh, in, this, uh, in this network meta-analysis. Of these trials, 29 of them used conventional oxygen uh, therapy. So nasal prongs uh, or plastic venturi face mask, uh, as Bram was mentioning, was the most common uh, quote unquote uh, control arm uh, in most of these trials, 29 of them. 24 of them uh, investigated non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, which is usually um, what, uh, a BiPAP, uh, bi-level uh, non-invasive positive pressure using a face mask interface. Um, 18 of these studies used uh, high-flow nasal cannula, which, uh, as the name suggests, um, is high flows with uh, uh, um, oxygen delivery by nasal cannula with a small degree of positive pressure. And there was a single trial, um, relatively recent trial, but uh, a high-impact trial called the HIWEEN trial, uh, which used alternating non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and high-flow nasal cannula. So that was the trial led by Professor Arnold Thiel, who's one of the co-authors on the study. Um, and so there was one study that used uh, that alternating method uh, that we also felt was important to include uh, in our trial. So those are the four main interventions that we, we evaluated. So Bram, from a statistical perspective, was it necessary to have a network meta-analysis subgroup sensitivity analysis, great approach to the systematic review data, and why? Yeah, thanks Ahmed for the question. You know, <clears throat> anytime you're doing meta-analysis or network meta-analysis, uh, critics will always bring up ideas around clinical heterogeneity. This is akin to the apples and oranges argument that if you're putting together two different study, two different uh, in terms of um, uh, the types of studies, then is it how do we make sense of the overall results? And there's ways that we can assess for important differences in clinical characteristics. But one of the ways that we help address these concerns is using uh, subgroup and sensitivity analysis. Starting with subgroup analysis, you know, we're able to assess based on distinct characteristics of the trials. Here, looking at different patient types, different risk levels, hypercapnic versus uh, hypoxic respiratory failure, and the location that the trial was done in terms of continent and able to evaluate whether these characteristics influence the overall results that, that we saw. And um, there's benefits to doing this using uh, meta-regression in so much that we don't have to artificially dichotomize some of these variables. For example, risk and baseline risk of, of re-intubation. It's a, a, a continuous variable. There's studies that we included that had low-risk patients and studies that we had that included high-risk patients. And rather than just categorizing them based on some artificial threshold, using meta-regression, we can actually treat that risk of reintubation as a continuous variable to see whether it influences the overall results that we found. And there's ways then of further assessing uh, credibility in any of the subgroup findings that we found. And we, we did that using a new tool called the Iceman tool. There's a reference for it in the publication if you want to check it out. 
And it's a, a method, a relatively new method of assessing whether uh, subgroup effects that are found are, are credible. Another uh, you know, way of assessing credibility results is using sensitivity analysis. Here's where you remove certain trials based on, again, methodologic or clinical decisions that were made. And one of the key ones that we did here in terms of sensitivity analysis uh, that Shannon uh, led was looking at uh, focusing only on uh, prevention trials, so preventing post-extubation respiratory failure as opposed to uh, treatment of uh, post-extubation respiratory failure. So, you know, those patients that you wait until they develop respiratory failure and then you apply the high flow or NIV. So we did sensitivity analysis just focused on um, the prevention trials. And I think, again, both of these tools, subgroup and sensitivity analysis, go a long way to further assessing the effect of clinical heterogeneity, further assessing the impact uh, and providing a reassurance around credibility. And they inform then the grade assessments. And, and Shannon did a fantastic job. We as a group did a fantastic job applying grade here. And it really helps in terms of contextualizing the results, you know, avoids over certain statements based on the data, but rather recognizes that um, there are potentially limitations around risk of bias, imprecision, inconsistency. And we use uh, assessment of those domains to inform how we frame the results and conclusions. Thank you so much. So Shannon, can you explain the results in terms of efficacy of interventions to reduce the risk of the intubation? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think this is one of the benefits of, of network meta-analysis, as, as Bram was saying. We have the ability to compare all of the various arms against each other um, using both direct, you know, traditional, uh, traditional meta-analysis, but also indirect uh, comparisons between groups. What we found is compared to conventional oxygenation, uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and high-flow nasal cannula both reduce uh, the odds of reintubation when we, we applied a moderate grade certainty uh, to that. Uh, similarly, the combination of high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive positive pressure ventilation when compared to conventional oxygen therapy also reduced the odds of extubation failure uh, very clearly, both with odds ratios, uh, the first two with odds ratios 0.65 and 0.63 respectively. Um, and then when we compared these uh, interventions against each other, uh, we found no difference actually between non-invasive positive pressure and high-flow nasal cannula with regard to reduction of uh, extubation failure. Um, and similarly, no, uh, no difference between high-flow nasal cannula and, uh, and, or uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and the combination of those two things uh, was not deemed to be more efficacious at reducing the risk of extubation failure. From a mortality perspective, Shannon, was there any difference in the outcomes? So that was also a really important outcome that we wanted to look at, obviously, that while these treatments do seem to manifest uh, in differences in uh, extubation failure, do they actually uh, result in differences in mortality? We actually did not see uh, any differences uh, in mortality between any of the arms. Um, all that being said, you know, in, in the, uh, the eye of trying to look at things in less of a frequentist uh, viewpoint and more of a Bayesian viewpoint, uh, the, and, and grade really, you know, certainly accounts for this. Is, well, the one thing I will say is that non-invasive positive pressure ventilation when compared to oxygen uh, therapy did have, a, a, did have a trend strongly towards non-invasive positive pressure ventilation reducing mortality with an odds, network's odds ratio of 0 0.80 and a 95% uh, confidence interval that went from 0.61 to 1.04. So just missing you know, very much the, the, you know, the, the arbitrary number that we consider to be uh, a positive, quote unquote, positive result by frequentist methods. Uh, there certainly seems to be a trend towards mortality. And we did see some, a similar trend 
uh, in the direction of benefit uh, for mortality with, with, with high flow nasal cannula and, you know, from uh, as compared to com conventional oxygen therapy. And that seems to make sense that, you know, if these, you know, excavation failure, we believe is a very, very uh, important prognostic factor in the outcome of mechanically ventilated patients. So it makes sense that treatments that reduce uh, that, you know, the incidence of that, uh, of that outcome uh, might have an, uh, a, uh, an impact on mortality as well. But we didn't, you know, see that statistically between any of the, the treatments that we looked at. That's really interesting. So which subgroups, Shannon, did the systematic review explore? And which were the outcomes in terms of different subgroups? Yeah, so this is a really, really important, I think very novel aspect of, of our network meta-analysis. Uh, so I'll speak to first the subgroups. So uh, as Bram said, one of the things you, we wanted to mitigate with this study was the degree of, of heterogeneity across trials. Most of the trials were uh, intervention uh, evaluated basically mixed uh, medical ICU patients, um, but there are 10 trials that looked just at surgical post-operative patients, um, seven trials that looked, or uh, five trials that looked at patients with purely hypercapnic respiratory failure, and seven trials that looked at quote-unquote high-risk patients, which were defined slightly differently across, across trials. So the first thing we did was meta-regression, looking to see if there was any, uh, any modification in our effect uh, based on uh, the, the population, which we didn't see. We also, as Bram said, uh, treated uh, the risk of excavation failure you know, as a continuous outcome in meta-regression and looked in to see whether uh, the, the magnitude of our effect size was changed depending on uh, the, uh, the, uh, the baseline risk of excavation failure in the trials. And this was a really interesting aspect because the truth is, you know, and, and again, in, in framing your world of a, as, you know, from not just a Bayesian perspective, but also looking at whenever we make a decision to institute treatment, we want to do the best thing for the patient. But we also have to consider the available resources. Uh, and while it would be great to, based on the results of this trial, extubate every single patient to, to uh, you know, non-invasive ventilation, we know that that's not feasible uh, and it's also expensive and it also requires a fair amount of resources. So what we showed is that the, the absolute estimate uh, or the be of benefit of these treatments uh, is increased based on the baseline risk, uh, based on the higher baseline risk of extubation failure. Um, and that results in a lower number needed to treat. So using the number needed to treat, if you speak about that specifically, in patients where there's a 5% risk of, of extubation failure or re-intubation, re the number needed to treat of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation to reduce conventional oxygen therapy is 60. Um, but in patients who have a 40% uh, risk of re-intubation, so a very high risk population, the number needed to treat is 11. And the reason that that's important to do that analysis and demonstrate that is again, while, we, while you know, theoretically our results show that routine use of these therapies does seem to reduce the risk of reintubation. intubation uh, you know, realistically, we know that we're only gonna use it probably for the highest risk patients. And it's important that clinicians know uh, that the biggest benefit of these treatments is in fact in, in those high risk patients. So I think that was a really valuable aspect uh, of our study and really I think uh, shows people uh, about why or when uh, as much as why uh, they should be using non-invasive ventilation. The sensitivity analysis is also very, very important. It's not included in the main results of our study. We had to unfortunately include that in the supplement. <clears throat> but what we wanted to do exactly as Bram said is, was contrast between studies that use these treatments prophylactically, meaning the patient is immediately after extubation is placed in non-invasive ventilation and, and trials that use this uh, as rescue. Um, because there are, so that meaning that once the patient became hypoxemic, uh, or, or started to develop evidence of respiratory stress, only then was non-invasive ventilation reinstituted. 
And the reason that it's important to do that is because it's probably the biggest trial to look at rescue, the, the classic trial uh, by Esteban and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2004, seemed to show a trend towards harm actually with the use of non-invasive ventilation for rescue uh, in patients who are already deteriorating post-extubation. When we did that analysis and, and, and you know, uh, separated those trials out, we saw that our results were very consistent uh, with our main results in patients where this treatment was used prophylactically. So uh, that's really, you know, influenced my own, uh, my own uh, practice and that if I'm going to use these treatments, I try to use them prophylactically in patients that I think they're high risk. But we didn't show benefit uh, in, in, in what ended up being conventional analysis because there's only five trials that looked at rescue. Uh, but we didn't see benefit in, in trials that used rescue. We, did, we didn't see a signal necessary to its harm, but certainly we didn't see any evidence of benefit. And I think that's a really important take home uh, for clinicians that if you're going to use these treatments and, and, uh, and you're going to sort of buy into the results that we're demonstrating, which I think are, are reasonably reliable, uh, then you have to realize that uh, this, the benefits of this treatment is best seen when you're using these, uh, these uh, interventions uh, in a prophylactic fashion post-extubation. Thank you. So, Bram, what do you think are the main physiological advantages of using NIV or high-flow nasal oxygen in order to reduce extubation failure? Thanks, Ahmed. Um, you know, I think it's fairly intuitive in, in so much that when we talk about uh, bi-level, uh, you know, you're, you're, you are providing both um, pressure support to help with generating tidal volumes, offloading the diaphragms, decreasing the amount of work that the patient has to do, and then an element of positive and expiratory pressure as well to help uh, recruit uh, airways, splint open airways, um, and uh, help in, in optimizing lung mechanics. So I think there are multiple physiologic advantages to using uh, non-invasive ventilation. Um, I think that when it comes to bi-level, despite the advantages, there are also potential harms in so much that we know patients that wear uh, NIV for prolonged periods of time experience often um, facial skin breakdown. I mean, to some degree, this depends on the interface that's used, but I think still more commonly we're using uh, the oronasal face mask. And I, I, I can't remember exactly, but I think the majority of trials that were included that evaluated NIV did use the oronasal interface. At my own center, we've been trying to use the helmet more and more in the last little while, and it might be interesting to look at um, helmet NIV studies in the post-extubation setting, but I'm, I'm not aware of any that have been done. And uh, as well, the application of NIV for prolonged periods of time can impact the ability to develop, uh, deliver adequate nutrition for patients to communicate. Uh, and potentially can be delirium provoking. So you do get this potential benefit from a physiologic perspective when it comes to respiratory mechanics, but there is a overlay of these potential risks as well. This is where, you know, high flow nasal cannula has really demonstrated a potential benefit both, you know, here in the post-extubation setting, but maybe also some of the rationale for its uh, benefit efficacy in hypoxemic respiratory failure in general is that it can still provide some of that positive pressure more in the range of positive and expiratory pressure. As you know, it doesn't provide the same pressure support in generating tidal volumes, but at the flows of 60 or 70 liters per minute does uh, provide some peep. Um, and uh, it does so 
by and then is able to avoid some of those potential harmful effects uh, as patients on high flow are still able to eat, communicate, and it's a much more comfortable interface that can be worn for longer periods of time. So I think um, multiple advantages uh, uh, to both over traditional high flow nasal cannula, maybe even more from a physiologic benefit uh, with bi-level as compared to high flow, but that's then weighed against uh, the potential harms as well. Thank you so much. A question to both of you. What do you think were the limitations of the systematic review and how did you try to, to treat them? Yeah, so I, I'd say there's, there's um, you know, there's certainly a number of, of potential limitations to this work. There's two that I think are, are, are probably the most important. The first is the, the heterogeneity, you know, 36 trials. And, and as I said, you know, various degrees of heterogeneity uh, in terms of the populations that are recruited in these trials. And as, as I mentioned, and as Bram mentioned, we, we did our best uh, to do subgroup sensitivity analysis to tease out whether, you know, this apples and oranges comparison was appropriate or not. Um, and we didn't really see any differences or a modification of effect based on subgroup. But I think that is something that needs to be, to be considered. The other really, really important uh, uh, limitation I think it's, is worth mentioning is that none of these trials, for obvious reasons, uh, were blinded. Um, to providers or to, you know, certainly a lot of them were blinded to out, uh, outcome assessors, um, but, uh, but not blinded to, to, to uh, treating clinicians. I mean, and, and that makes sense. You can't really blind who's, who's randomized to conventional oxygen and, and who's randomized to non-invasive ventilation. We, we understand that this is a limitation that's difficult to overcome, but we also have to recognize that this limitation uh, is real because there might be differences not necessarily related to the treatment themselves that might account for differences. So for example, and the most obvious one we can think of is that a patient who's randomized to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, for example, might be somebody who needs to be treated in an ICU and stay in an ICU as opposed to somebody on conventional oxygen therapy who might be moved out of an ICU. So that person who's on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, if they're in an ICU or even if they're in a step-down unit, it's probably going to be monitored more closely, probably going to have their secretions cared for more closely. Um, and so those, those type of things can certainly influence the outcome. Uh, and to mitigate the, this, we, we account for it in, in, in grade. Um, and so uh, as Bram said, uh, we, we applied grade to all our findings. And so for more subjective outcomes, like, um, uh, like, uh, like extubation failure, we did downgrade our grade results, or our grade confidence from high uh, to moderate uh, on the basis of the fact that these trials could not be uh, blinded. But for more objective outcomes, such as mortality, we, we didn't do that. And, and that's a bit of a, of a conservative viewpoint, but I think uh, adequately reflects that we should uh, you know, alter our certainty based on the fact that you know, one of the, the factors that we consider to be most, most valuable in randomized trials is, is that of blinding, uh, but that could not be uh, used in these trials. Thank you. Would you like to add anything, Bram? No, that's great. Thank you. So Bram, going back to you, what will you bring forward and what are the future research directions in this domain? Yeah, thanks. I, I mean, I think there are still residual questions and areas that we may have been able to generate point estimates with 95% uh, confidence intervals, but there was still a fair degree of imprecision. I mean, I think when it comes to preventative use, it certainly seems like most patients will benefit from 
uh, NIV or high flow nasal cannula from a reintubation mortality perspective. I think uh, in this setting, ongoing questions include comparison between the two. And if there's uh, which specific subtype of patients may benefit from bilevel as compared to high flow nasal cannula. And, you know, the other side of the coin, as we've discussed, is that despite signals for patient benefit, there are costs associated with both, including potentially extending ICU lengths of stay with application of these uh, modalities across the board. And so I think cost effectiveness analysis would be very useful uh, in evaluating these two different interventions, as it is another important piece of the puzzle in terms of as, as we start using these more widespread so uh, comparison between the two, um, trying to identify specific subtypes of patients that might benefit most or least, cost effectiveness analysis. And then when it, uh, when it comes to rescue, I think there's even more uncertainty. You know, as Shannon said, the Esteban trial uh, done in 2004 suggested potentially harm if you wait for the establishment of post-extubation respiratory failure before applying NIB. I don't know if uh, it would be interesting to see that trial reproduced uh, using different uh, NIV interfaces, whether that changes things. There is very minimal data looking at the role of rescue high-flow nasal cannula for post-extubation respiratory failure. So I think in the rescue setting, uh, still lots of uncertainty and room for further uh, research as well. Those would be my main areas of priority. Perhaps Shannon has others. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that uh, you know, whenever I look at a, a meta-analysis, I look to see uh, exactly as Brandon said, where are the areas of imprecision and and hopefully you're seeing where people are getting their data and exactly as Brandon said, there's, there's I think rescue is certainly uh, an area of very uh, important study. The Esteban trial, you know, being what it is and, and certainly the, some of the best high quality evidence that we have, but still a, a trial that's, you know, almost 20 years old now uh, and, uh, and, and you know, intensive care has changed quite significantly in that time. And, and so it, what we saw was the more recent trials, albeit much smaller and not of the same quality, uh, did not seem to demonstrate uh, any harm uh, from that uh, from that practice, um, but and pulled the the point estimate a little bit closer. But it still we didn't see any evidence of benefit. Certainly not at the level that we see of of using this uh, for for, um, for for prophylaxis. So I, I do you know really caution clinicians that that was the reason we did that that sensitive that subgroup analysis uh, or the sensitivity analysis rather. And that's what I, I think uh, is how these treatments, if you're going to use them, how you should be using these interventions. But certainly a lot of room for, for future investigation. Thank you so much, Shannon and, and Bram. That was a really interesting talk. Thank you so much for your contribution. Have a nice day and thank you so much again. Take care. Thanks again for the, the chance. Yeah, thanks so much for having us on. I really appreciate it.